This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. You know, I spent about 25 years in government. And one of the things I took away uh, is this. The world doesn't govern itself. And over the past 70 plus years, the United States has played a lead role in helping to govern the world. If we're not doing it, if we're not playing a lead role, either someone else will or even worse, perhaps no one does. And then the forces of anarchy and chaos prevail. What should our strategic approach to China be? I still think the basics of what we were trying to do, work to cooperate with China where we can, compete with it where we must, is still uh, the right approach. But now we're stuck in a different dynamic, veering wildly between confrontation on the one hand and abdication on the other hand. We've seen Xi Jinping try to assert himself as a leader of the global community who is in favor of a free and open trading system, who supports globalization, who supports the United Nations, peacekeeping, uh, whose voting shares are increasing in the international financial institutions at the same time when we're pulling back from all of that. Again, in the absence of American leadership, in the absence of an American model, a Chinese model could win by default, not because it's better. Tony Blinken held three senior foreign policy and national security positions during the Obama administration. He served as Deputy Secretary of State, as President Obama's Deputy National Security Advisor, and as the National Security Advisor to Vice President Biden. Today, Tony is the Managing Director of the Penn-Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement and a co-founder and managing partner of West Exec Advisors, a Washington, D.C. consulting firm. I recently had a chance to sit down with Tony to discuss the entire range of global affairs. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From training warfighters to modernizing platforms to defeating UAVs with lines of code, Raytheon is working across networks, markets, and continents to protect every side of cyber. Raytheon making the world a safer place. 
Tony, great to have you on the show. Thanks, Mike. Great to be with you. Tony, you have a particularly interesting story about how you came to be interested in foreign policy. Mm. Can you share that with us? Yes. You know, I, I think we're all sort of products of the conversations we hear around the uh, the dining room table, the kitchen table in our families. And in my family, uh, a lot of the stories were about the fact that so many of the people who came before me were refugees or, or immigrants of one kind or another. I had a grandfather uh, who came here at the turn of the last century fleeing pogroms uh, in what's now uh, Ukraine, uh, was welcomed in the United States, built a life for himself, for his uh, children. A stepmother who fled communism literally in the dead of night on a train, uh, made her way at a very young age with her mother to the United States. She, too, was welcomed here. And then finally, my stepfather, uh, who passed away a few years ago, he was one of 900 children uh, in his school in Bialystok, Poland, before World War II, the only one of those 900 to survive. His entire immediate family uh, was wiped out. Bialystok was a center of Jewish living in, in Poland. He wound up in virtually all of the concentration camps one can remember from history, Auschwitz, Dachau, Majdanek. At the very end of the war, uh, he made a run for it. They were on a death march out of one of the camps in Bavaria. And he made a run for it with some of his friends. And somehow they made it into the How woods. How old was he at the time? At this, time, at this point, he was 16. So he was in the camps from age 12 mm. to 16. And somehow they made it to the woods. And they hid out during the day and, and moved around at night. And after a few days of this, one day, they heard this rumbling sound. And as he looked out from their hiding place, what he saw was a tank. But instead of having the dreaded Iron Cross or swastika on it, he saw something else. He saw a five-pointed white star. And in a kind of crazy way, he, he ran to the tank. And the hatch opened up, and an African-American GI looked down at him. And he got down on his knees, and he said the only three words that he knew in English that his mother had taught him before the war, God bless America. And at that point, the GI lifted him into the tank, into freedom, uh, in effect, into the United States. That was kind of the image that I had of my country growing up, what it represented to people around the world. And I think that's what motivated me as much as anything else to get into foreign policy. So um, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but what we're seeing in our own country now mm. with the feelings about immigrants and refugees must cut to the core with you. It, it, it does. Uh, it, it, and, you know, on the one hand, look, I think we all get it. People feel a tremendous sense of confusion right now and chaos and, uh, and a loss of identity. Uh, they don't recognize themselves. They don't recognize uh, the country. And it's deeply, deeply, deeply confusing. At the same time, we know from our own history that we've gone through successive waves of migration, each of which has made the country stronger, but each of which uh, at different points in history had uh, a counterwave, whether it was uh, Irish, whether it was Italians, whether it was Jews, whether it was Asians, whether it's Latinos. And we know that this is incredibly disruptive, uh, and it takes some time to, to sort it all out. Each time, it's made the country stronger. But during these periods of, of, of transition, it's tough, and we have to find a way forward uh, that works for all of our communities, as well as working for the so, people who want to come here. So in those previous moments of backlash, mm. how, did we, how did we emerge from them? You know, in these previous uh, moments... Um, there was a transition period, and it was, uh, and it was challenging. And it, I don't want to minimize the, the disruptions that took place. But there was a recognition as the economy might uh, improve, uh, as we saw success, as we saw what 
immigrants were bringing to the country, there was a recognition that this made sense for America. And now, when we look across the broad swath of the economy, look at every pursuit. Who are the folks who are picking our crops? Who are the folks serving food uh, at, uh, at our tables, <laughs> cleaning our homes? Uh, and then as you move up the ladder, nursing the sick in underserved communities, doctoring them. And then uh, at, the, at the highest end, half of our Fortune uh, 500 companies, founded or co-founded by immigrants or the sons and daughters of immigrants, half of the startups in Silicon Valley, the same thing. So we see the success time and time again. But now, in this particular moment, these disruptive forces are more intense and more acute than they've been. And you get the feeling things are just moving in fast motion. And it's very hard for people to be grounded and have a sense that they're going to come out okay on the other side. So with this history behind, right, with with this historical understanding, Mm -hmm. are you confident that we're going to come out the other end here? Look, this could be the exception that breaks the rule. It's it's, it's hard to be uh, fully confident. (laughs) You know, I'm reminded of, uh, of the late John McCain who said, it's always darkest before it goes completely black. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all of that said, I don't, I don't believe that. I, I think that most of us have a sense of optimism based on our history because we've been through incredibly tough periods before. The 1960s, to take a recent uh, example, the late 1960s, were far more disruptive uh, than the period that we're going through now. The dawn of the progressive era, to me, this is, this is maybe most closely approximate to that. We had, before the progressive era, capitalism fully unleashed in this country, mm-hmm. producing tremendous wealth uh, and in many ways tremendous progress, but also in a way that was not evenly distributed, that was leaving too many people out, too many people behind. And thankfully, we had uh, a progressive era in which the rough edges of capitalism were rounded off. More people were brought into the mix. We made major investments in education, in healthcare, in infrastructure, progressive taxation. Now, in a sense, we need a progressive era, but on a global scale. That's really the challenge of the moment, to figure out how we can take these incredible forces that are at play, bringing tremendous advantages, globalization, but in a way that doesn't leave too many people yeah, out of so the deal. I heard Warren Buffett say not long ago that, um, you know how there's things that people say that stay with you for the rest of your mm. life? This was one of those mm. moments. He said, I believe that capitalism was the greatest force for good in the history of mankind, mm. which I believe too. Mm. And then he said, but I fear we're going to lose it unless we take care of the people that it leaves behind. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, there is a crisis of legitimacy for, for capitalism uh, that we're going through now. And again, we've been through it before. We were, we, this is what happened before the progressive era. It happened before the New Deal. And in a sense, it's happening now, but again, on a global scale. And we figured out how to get through these periods before. Now, could this be different? Absolutely. At each big transformation, there was a, a, a transitional period and somehow we wound up Uh, on the other side, in a better place. That may still happen, but you still have to get to the other side. And that's the challenge we're in now. Then the impact of all of this on our foreign policy Mm. and our role in the world, how do you think about that? Well, I think there's increasingly a recognition that whatever foreign policy we pursue, it actually has to work for people here at home. And if it doesn't, then it's going to be very difficult to sustain it. And so, for example... If we have a foreign trade policy, an economic policy, that's not also working to materially improve the lives of people here, uh, it's not going to be sustained. If we have a foreign policy that people perceive is uh, somehow getting us into problems that uh, we shouldn't be involved in, that may be difficult to sustain as well. So being clear with with our fellow citizens, uh, explaining what we're doing, why we're doing it, what the objectives are, how it's going to actually make their lives better is usually important. But, Mike, I'd say another thing. 
we shouldn't be a prisoner to history, but we should at least be informed by it. And I think, you know, the period after World War II was usually instructive and remains very instructive because that was a period in time when after the war we could have retreated, as we did after World War I, we could have pulled back, or we could have used the tremendous power that we had to basically lord it over others. And we didn't do either of those things. Famously, we spent time building the institutions, developing the norms, the rules that others live by, but also ourselves. And that and seemed counterintuitive. spending a tremendous amount of money rebuilding our enemies. A- absolutely. But here's what we got out of it. We did. We invested in their uh, prosperity. We invested in their security. But we got new markets for our products. We got new partners to deal with global challenges. We got new allies to deter aggression. Those investments we got 10, 20, 100 times over uh, in return. And that's why, as we think about today, uh, we shouldn't be blind to what we did in the past because it does hold lessons. Yeah. So, Tony, one of the, one of the things that, that I worry about is that we national security folk, foreign policy folk, have a hard time articulating for the average American why America's role in the world mm. is so important to them, yeah. right? I mean, I've been places in the country where people say to me, Mr. Morell, why does it matter what Vladimir Putin does in Ukraine? Mm. Why does it matter what the Chinese do in the South China Sea? How does that affect me? Mm. How do you answer that question? You know, I spent about 25 years in government. And one of the things I took away uh, is this. The world doesn't govern itself. And over the past 70 plus years, the United States has played a lead role in helping to govern the world. Again, establishing the institutions, but also defending them. Uh, helping to put in place the rules and the norms. And we know this. If we're not doing it, if we're not playing a lead role, uh, then one of two things. Either someone else will, and probably not in a way that advances our interests and values, Mm -hmm. or even worse, perhaps, no one does. And then the forces of anarchy and chaos prevail. And in the past when that's happened, that's created big uh, global conflagrations, World War I, World War II. Which we get sucked into. Which we get sucked into. So uh, pay now or pay later. It's pay now or pay a lot more later. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing I'd say is this. We have extraordinary resources in this country. And with those resources, with that uh, wealth, uh, with that success, I think comes a certain amount of responsibility to at least do our part in advancing the common good. But it's also something called enlightened self-interest. Yes, it's doing right by others, but ultimately that does well by us. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Tony Blinken. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. Okay, let's do an around-the-world kind of hotspots approach. And and as we do these, Tony, I would ask you to kind of assess the situation, Mm -hmm. assess the Trump administration's approach to that issue, and if you disagree with it, say what you would recommend mm-hmm. to the president instead. Okay, so let's start with Saudi Arabia. Mm. I think the administration has missed a tremendous opportunity to use a horrific, uh, terrible event—the murder of uh, 
this journalist Khashoggi, to use that as a way to influence Saudi behavior and Saudi policies in a way that better reflect our interests and our values. There was a moment to go to Saudi Arabia and say uh, a few things. One, your new leader or de facto leader, the crown prince, acts in impulsive and sometimes reckless ways. We're not telling you who should lead your country, but we are telling you he needs to be reined in in some fashion. You choose how. Second, this horrific war in Yemen uh, that is doing extraordinary damage to tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians, that needs to end. You need to actually take the first step in uh, helping to end it. We're here to defend you. We will defend you from any aggression by the Houthis in Yemen, but you need to take steps to end this war, and we won't be complicit in it anymore. Third, this crazy division with Qatar, uh, that needs to end. Uh, You need to resolve it. And you also need to demonstrate to the world that uh, the things you're talking about in terms of liberalizing your country, you mean, and that means letting people who've been simply trying to advance and advocate for their rights out of jail. There was a moment to do all of that. That moment seems to have been squandered. Saudi Arabia seems to have a blank check. This is not about ending the alliance or the partnership with Saudi Arabia. It is making sure that the alliance actually reflects our interests and our values, not just Saudi Arabia's. Your view on the likelihood that Mohammed bin Salman is going to change? (laughs) Because, I mean, there's been such a pattern here of reckless behavior, right? And it seems to flow from both an arrogance and a paranoia, Mm -hmm. right? And people who have paranoia, as they get older, it tends not to go away. So I'm, I'm, I'm really wondering here about how likely he is to change ultimately. Look, I'm skeptical, which is why I think uh, we, uh, Saudi Arabia needs a governor on his impulsiveness and his, his recklessness of their choice, whether it's a regent, whether it's a council, something. But look, he is whatever he is, 33, 34 now. I don't want to rule that out either. You know, I met him when he was 29. He'd just become defense minister. And this was just after the Houthi aggression uh, taking over Sana'a and Yemen and then moving on the rest of the country. And then the Saudis and the Emiratis intervened with our our backing. And I was dispatched to Saudi Arabia to uh, say two things. One was to make it clear that we were committed to Saudi Arabia's defense. If they were attacked in any way by the Houthis, we would be there. But two was to ask them, what are you trying to accomplish in Yemen? What's the strategic objective? And the answer I got from Mohammed bin Salman uh, in the meeting with him was immediately to remove every last vestige of Iranian influence in Yemen. Uh, to which I responded, good luck. Not going to happen. My hope is that uh, with experience, uh, including the experience of what's ha- what, what he has brought on himself through uh, this horrific, horrific action uh, and murder of a journalist, that uh, if he's going to remain around, that he learns something from it. But yeah, the jury's out. We'll see. Just across the Persian Gulf, Iran. Hmm. Look, I think... The irony with with Iran is that we have a lot of problems and challenges posed by Iran, uh, including its support for terrorism, including its meddling in in various countries in the region, uh, including, of course, its abysmal record at home on human rights. The irony is this. The one thing we got right, actually curbing its nuclear weapons program and putting a check on it, is the one thing we just tore up, which makes no sense. And now it actually makes it more difficult to deal with the other challenges posed by Iran. My hope is why that, more, why more difficult? Two reasons. First, I think the reason that we the uh, Obama administration focused like a laser uh, on trying to deal with the problem that we that was a, an urgent problem, which was Iran having the capacity 
to move to a nuclear weapon very, very quickly, to, to have the capacity to have enough fissile material on very short order to build a weapon, was urgent because of the immediate threat that that would pose if they actually developed a weapon, but also because it would allow them to act with even greater impunity in these other areas where they posed a threat to our interests uh, and to what we were trying to achieve in the, uh, in the region. Now I think we have the worst of, uh, of both worlds. Iran, for the time being, uh, continues to abide by its obligations under the deal. It's trying to see if it can get the economic benefits it bargained for from Europe uh, and from other countries, and we'll see if that's sustainable. What I worry about is this. Given the administration's efforts to squeeze Iran economically and to use the levers that we have with our economy to force other countries to abandon any kind of economic relationship with Iran, at some point, those in Iran who are against the nuclear deal from the, from the beginning will reassert themselves and say, we're no longer abiding by our obligations. Mm-hmm. And then, Mike, we'll be right back where we were before we got into the deal, which is Iran on the threshold of having enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon. And we'll be faced with the binary choice that we tried to avoid. Right. right. And um, we're sending a signal, a very strong signal, whether it's the policy or not, I don't know, but we're sending a signal that we're all about regime change. And if you're the Iranians, why would you ever negotiate with people who want you to go away? That's right. The idea that that, that Iran is now going to uh, do more and get less under duress uh, doesn't make any sense. Afghanistan. We've been there for 17 years. (sighs) This is one of the toughest problems and I think uh, one of the most enduring frustrations that I've had. And I have to acknowledge here that I actually think President Trump's instincts are probably right on this, which is it's time. It's time to, uh, to cut the cord. And this goes against a lot of, uh, I think, instincts that a lot of us have because we know what the Taliban regime meant to the people of Afghanistan and not in a good way. We know that real progress has been made in improving the lives of people in Afghanistan. At the same time, the position we're in is not sustainable. And where I'm particularly frustrated is this, uh, and, and you'll remember this well. Virtually every year, uh, we would hear uh, from our colleagues, we just need one more year, just one more year, and it will be self-sustaining. The Afghans will be able to fend for themselves. The military will be able to control the uh, security situation along with the police. And year after year, it was just one more year. I think our finger's been in the dike in Afghanistan for a long time. Uh, I obviously worry what will happen when we take it out, but I also think that at this point, it's just not sustainable. And we also have to remember why we were there in the first place. As much as one can appreciate some of the successes that the international community had in improving the lives of Afghans, the bottom line hard reality is that we were there uh, because of 9-11 and because of al-Qaeda. And that threat has been, if not eliminated, uh, significantly reduced to the point where I think it can be contained without having 15,000 Americans in I mean, Afghanistan. One of the ways I think about it is to ask, if we weren't there now, yep. would we go? Yeah. And the answer to that well, is no. I think you've got it right. Absolutely. Russia. Putin's aggression yeah. on a number of fronts, right? Mm. Whether it's uh, with his neighbors, whether it's what he's doing in Syria, mm. whether it's what he is doing in terms of weaponizing social media, a whole bunch of issues. How do we deal with that? Putin is playing a losing hand brilliantly. Uh, Russia, by virtually every metric, is actually in decline, and yet he's succeeded in reasserting Russia uh, on the world stage, to some extent to distract from from problems at home, to some extent to try to realize uh, a vision that he has uh, of a greater Russia, but mostly, I think, for for this reason. 
the biggest threat to Putin's continued leadership in, in Russia uh, is really the success of democracy. And that's true, by the way, for just about any uh, autocrat. And he has a profound strategic interest in trying to demonstrate to his own people uh, that democracies are failing, that our system is no better than his. It's not delivering better results. To the contrary, uh, it's chaotic, uh, not stable. And so, unfortunately, uh, whether we like it or not, and even if we pulled back and didn't uh, engage uh, Russian aggression, I believe he would continue to try to create trouble in Europe, in the United States, within our societies, uh, and between them. So this is a huge, uh, a huge challenge so how for do us. We, how do we engage him in a way that makes this much better? A few things. First of all, let's take Ukraine. And let's take Russian aggression with regard to some of its, its neighbors. First, I think it's a good thing that we expanded NATO. Some, there's a big argument over whether NATO expansion actually uh, has provoked Russian behavior. I ask myself, where would the uh, Baltic states be right now if they were not in NATO? Uh, where would Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic be in their own ways? I think that's proved to be a trem- tremendous deterrent uh, to Russian uh, aggression. But states like Ukraine that are not in it, There's a reason that we got involved in leading the effort to put pressure on Russia to stop its aggression and, and we hope, uh, actually return sovereignty to Ukraine. And it's not because on on a basic level, Ukraine itself is that critical to the United States or to countries in Europe. It's because the norms that were violated in terms of aggressing uh, a democratic country on Russia's borders, changing its borders by force, trying to dictate to people their choices about with whom they would ally or uh, associate. If you allow that to stand, it is an open invitation to aggression and anarchy throughout the world. So we had to stand up against that. And I think sustaining that is important and we've sustained it. And uh, and the Trump administration, despite what the president says, the administration itself has sustained it. But at home, we have to do a much better job, of course, at defending our democratic institutions uh, from the kind of meddling we've seen not only in the, in the elections in 2016, but everything that's, that, that's followed since. And I think we've got, we've got a, a couple of big challenges there. First, we're not properly defended. Second, we don't have a clear and effective deterrence policy. We need to actually be very clear about what we'll actually do if we're attacked and mean it uh, and actually do it. And then uh, we probably have to look at how we would use Uh, these tools ourselves, Mm -hmm. uh, and also what the right responses would be. And they may well be asymmetric. Uh, Responding tit for tat, for example, against some kind of cyber... The problem, uh, of course, is that politics has got in the middle of this issue, right? right, And has not allowed that the discussion that you want to have on this to actually occur. This should have been a unifying issue. This should have brought people together because the attack is not on Democrats or on Republicans or anyone else. It's on our democracy. And that's the one thing that should unite us. And unfortunately, that's what we're losing right now. North Korea. So on North Korea, look, I think that there was some merit um, in President Trump throwing the deck of cards up in the air and um, seeing what, what came from it. Because the fact of the matter is the policy that successive administrations have pursued uh, over the last decades has not worked. Uh, North Korea has gotten more dangerous, not less dangerous. Its arsenal has gotten bigger, not smaller. Uh, And so at some point you say maybe it's worth trying something new. And I don't uh, object to direct diplomacy, even with someone as heinous as Kim Jong-un. But 
Unfortunately, thus far at least, the art of the deal has really been the art of the steal and all in North Korea's favor. I think the president, in having the meeting with Kim Jong-un, uh, gave Kim Jong-un something that he deeply, deeply valued and that none of his predecessors were able to get, and that was the legitimacy that comes from meeting with the leader of the free world. That being was the on the question, same stage. It was the question they always asked, he and his father, right. when can I meet with the president? When can I meet with the president? So, so President Trump would say, see, I did something that no previous president did. Well, there was a good reason that previous presidents didn't do it. Or if you're going to do it, at least make sure you're getting something. And unfortunately, thus far at least, we haven't. North Korea's program has continued. We continue to see reports uh, in the press from our intelligence agencies and others showing that far from pulling back, they're moving forward. At the same time, in elevating Kim Jong-un, in declaring success, in even saying at one point that the nuclear problem was resolved, the president gave a green light to other countries, starting with China, to go back to something approaching business as usual. What had been working and where the administration deserves credit was it not only continued but it actually deepened the pressure program that the Obama administration put in place to cut off every economic tie that North Korea had, diplomatic ties, political ties, and that was starting to have an effect. China, of course, is a key to that. Now the president has basically said to China, hey, if the problem's resolved, uh, why should uh, China have to continue Chinese, to Chinese, the Russians, and the South Koreans Absolutely. have all That's exactly right. up. That's right. exactly right. So thus far, at least, uh, while, you know, again, I give him some points for trying a different playbook, the way he's played it, uh, I think, is making things worse, not better. How would you fix that? Well, this I is... I mean, a, if you this, could you know, say to Mike Pompeo, here's what I think you need to do. Look, I think we were on the right track, and we, we need to figure out a way to get back to it, which was a sustained pressure campaign that's internationally coordinated, uh, but that has an objective, not regime change, but uh, conduct change. The, the hard reality is it's, if not impossible, highly unlikely that we will achieve in any near term uh, the complete denuclearization of North Korea. Uh, I just don't see that as realistic in the near term. What I think we can get is an arms control and over time disarmament process uh, put in place. But that requires enough pressure, sustained and comprehensive, to get North Korea to the table. And that requires China. It requires South Korea. It requires Russia. It requires others. It's doable, but it takes time. It has to be sustained and it has to be uh, comprehensive. So there's a play there, but uh, we haven't seen signs of the administration being willing to do it. Okay, the toughest one of all, yeah, China, <laughs> right? What should our strategic approach to China be? We've, we had an approach uh, for decades that sought to bring China more and more into the international system, starting with the international economy on the theory that this would actually liberalize China at the same time. And thus far, at least, uh, that theory has not Worn out. Now, history is long, especially Chinese history. So maybe we're assessing the situation too soon. But clearly, the consensus that had developed over the right approach, uh, the responsible stakeholder approach, uh, right now at least, is in serious doubt. But I still think the basics of what we were trying to do, which was work to cooperate with China where we can, compete with it where we must, but compete uh, in a way that has a, a level playing field and basic fairness is still uh, the right approach. But now we're stuck in a different dynamic. And that is a veering wildly between confrontation on the one hand and abdication on the other hand. So on the one hand, a very confrontational approach uh, over trade and related issues, which is not wrong in the sense that 
the lack of reciprocity in the commercial relationship was totally unsustainable. These are real issues. These, These are, are real issues. Yeah. The president was right to confront the issue. I think profoundly wrong in the way he's doing it. Throwing out the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a huge strategic mistake. This was our best lever to change Chinese behavior. 40% of world GDP with us in it represented something that China would want to get into, not stay out of. That's gone. Not making common cause with our allies who are similarly situated when it comes to China, who are aggrieved in the same way with technology transfer, the theft of intellectual property, the lack of transparency, unfair competition from state-owned enterprises. We should have been on the same team with them. Instead, of course, starting a tariff war against our closest partners has made that more difficult. But that needs to be dealt with. But I think that as we're doing that, we can't abdicate uh, our leadership in, in the region. And again, getting out of TPP is an abdication uh, of our leadership. Telling our allies, you know what, you're going to be on your own. Uh, we don't want to pay for this anymore. That's an abdication of leadership. And if there's a vacuum, uh, look, what have we seen? A profound irony. We've seen Xi Jinping try to assert himself as a leader of the global community who is in favor of uh, a free and open trading system, who supports uh, globalization, uh, who, want, who supports the United Nations, peacekeeping, uh, whose voting shares are increasing in the international financial institutions at the same time when we're pulling back from all of that. And that means that, again, in the absence uh, of American leadership, in the absence of an American model, a Chinese model could win by default, not because it's better. They're one of the two outcomes you talked about earlier. Exactly. Right. Tony, you have been fantastic with your time. I just want to ask you one final question. You worked very closely with two people who may run for president in 2020, <laughs> Joe Biden and John Kerry. And what I'd love to hear you talk about a little bit is how would a, a Biden foreign policy or a Kerry foreign policy be different from an Obama foreign policy? Because I think most people think it would be exactly the same. And I'm just wondering what you think. Look, I, it's, I can't speak for either Secretary Kerry or Vice President Biden when it comes to what policies they, were, they would pursue if they you know, were to continue in, in, in public life uh, in, in some fashion. Um, I think, in fact, uh, in either case, there'd be uh, some significant the, – the basic principles uh, were the same. But we're also in a, different, uh, in a different moment, and it's the moment we talked about at the very outset, a moment in which there are – People in our own country, people in allied countries, people around the world who are feeling a sense of chaos, confusion, and vulnerability because of the rapidity and profundity of, of change, technological change, the flow of information. At the same time, uh, a paradox when by so many metrics we're better off than we've ever been in history and yet too many people left out and left behind uh, in that situation. Uh, the best way to look at it is, on the one hand, over the last 30 to 40 years, extraordinary success in alleviating poverty around the world, and yet inequality is growing at the same time. And those two things put together create a lot of disaffected people, either economically or culturally. And then finally, huge power shifts, not only among countries, but beyond them, between them, uh, the rise of China that we talked about, but also super-empowered groups and individuals, corporate chieftains, the mayors of, of, of megacities, all of these new actors making it more difficult for nation states to get the results that they would get in the past. That's an increasingly new reality, and technology is driving a lot of that. So I think that the next president is going to the have next to president, to whoever it is, yeah. has to deal with that. Yeah. And I think that again, this comes down to um, uh, a president who understands that whatever foreign policy we pursue, it has to actually work for people here at home. 
it has to show them that it's making their own lives safer, more prosperous, and uh, ultimately, that's the, uh, that's the test. Tony, thank you for being with us. Great to be with you, Mike, as always. That was Tony Blinken. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.